witness and observing of other performed the miracles that he performed. There were even a host of other, a multitude of other people out there who at least came with some sense of interest in what Jesus would have to say. They, they, they'd heard about him as a teacher. They, they heard he was a carpenter from Nazareth and they said, we'll, we'll go, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll just see what this is like. But they, they weren't as consistent as the 120 who seemed to be following along with Jesus. And then the Bible tells us this that I think is important. Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before he named these 12 men. So we've gone from a multitude, an unnumbered multitude of people out there that Jesus could have picked from, down to 120, down to 12. And then when you come to the 12 disciples, you discover that there are three that seem to be a little more prominent than the other nine. And when I say prominent, you, you, you just see them with Jesus at times you don't always see the other nine. For instance, when, when Jesus raised Simon Peter's mother-in-law, it was Peter, James, and John who alone were with Jesus. Jesus healed a child, the daughter of Jairus, a Roman leader. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus. There was an event in the life and ministry of Jesus where the Bible says that Jesus retreated to a mountain again to spend time in prayer. And it was before the very eyes of these three men, James, Peter, and John, that the Bible says Jesus was transfigured. We, we refer to this as the Mount of Transfiguration. And they say that Jesus began to be illuminated before their very eyes and, and sweat began to fall from Jesus as great drops of blood. And you remember at that particular moment that it, the Bible says that two Old Testament men showed up. Do you remember who they were? Moses and Elijah. And it was when they showed up that Simon Peter said, Lord, we'll just put up some tents and we'll stay here forever. I think it was that good of an experience. Just as an aside, no extra charge for this, the Bible quickly says that Jesus disbanded them from the mountain and they went down into the valley and it was while they were in the valley that he met a demon-possessed child and he healed the child from that demon possession. You see, I think Jesus was teaching them and us a lesson and that is that you can stay on the mountaintop but you don't live on the mountaintop. You have to come down and sometimes apply what you've learned and experienced in that mountaintop experience. James was there when Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes. The Bible says that after Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he went out to the Mount of Olives and he took the entire 12 with him, well, at least 11. You'll remember Judas had excused himself earlier from the meal. And as they came to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, James, and John went further into the garden with Jesus and they heard Jesus' most intimate prayer I believe he ever prayed, at least as far as the Bible records it. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But the other eight disciples, they stayed closer to the gate. Here's the point. This James, he was a privileged man. 
He was privileged to be called as one of the twelve. He was privileged to be called as one of these three men who would be with Jesus at times that the other men did not have opportunity or were not included. He was a privileged guy. And then we come to Mark chapter 10. (laughs) And in this gospel, it says that James and his brother, but right now we just look at James, came to Jesus and said, Lord, we need to make a request of you. And Mark says that Jesus entertained them and said, all right, what is it? What do you want me to do? And, And they said, well, we want to help you out. We want to do something for you, Lord. We want to sit one to your right and one to your left. Listen to this now. In your glory. In other words, when you are revealed for who you are to all the world as Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, the Christ, We want to share in that with you. Now if you would, let me just fast forward to verse 41 there for a minute, that last verse that we read. And I want to ask you a question this morning. Is there any doubt in your mind whatsoever as to why the other disciples would be indignant with James and John? I mean, they were upset with him. They were not happy. Let's put, it in, let's put it in this frame for you. Just, just ask yourself about this. Let's suppose that you work in an office or a company and there are several peers. As far as the organizational chart is concerned, you are on the same level with all of these other people. And what if you knew for a fact or maybe even you witnessed for yourself that one of your co-workers went to your supervisor, your boss, and said, hey... I hear there's going to be an opportunity for a promotion coming up, and I just want you to know that I'm your man. I'm the one. I'm the one that you need to name who will move into that slot. And it's, it's, a, it's a position that's right up there with your supervisor or maybe even your boss. How would you feel? Knowing in your heart that you were just as capable, that you were just as qualified, that you had just as many credentials as that co-worker, but yet they are elbowing their way to the table and they are putting their name up front to say, I want you to know I'm the one. Self-acclaimed promotion. Would you be happy with that? I think not. If you're honest at all. You know, when I come to the Bible, I don't know of more ego or arrogance or pride that you would find anywhere else in the New Testament. When the Old Testament is considered, I have to go to Nebuchadnezzar, who the Bible says, remember Nebuchadnezzar, that ancient Babylonian king? The the, the book of Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar walked on the roof of his palace, get this now, and he looked out over his empire and said, look at all that I have accomplished. And immediately the Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. It's one of the most amazing scriptures in all the... And I'll tell you what's interesting, other interesting part about this is 
That part of the book of Daniel was written by Nebuchadnezzar. Did you know that? A pagan king penned his own autobiography for that particular part of his life. And Nebuchadnezzar understood that it was that moment when he claimed ownership of all that he'd accomplished that God said, uh, no, you didn't. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar was put out to pasture and he lived like a wild beast. His hair grew, his fingernails grew like talons. And he was considered to be a mad individual, a person who'd become insane. And it wasn't until God restored him that he repented and came back to his senses and I believe gave his life to the Lord. It's an amazing story, but it all began when he said, look at me, look at me, essence, what James and John are doing. Now I want to ask you a question. Where does this come from? Anybody here have any idea? I mean, would, would any, I, I want to tell you something. It's taken me a long time to figure out that I see myself in that scripture. Because I want to be recognized. I want to be applauded. I want to be patted on the back. I want to be the one that's promoted. I want to be the one that's pushed up front and so forth. But where in the world does this come from? We know that it can, it can get out of hand, right? And it can get out of hand very quickly. Well, I would just offer a hunch to you this morning. I, this, I'm no expert, and I'm not saying this is exactly scientifically proven where it's coming from, but I'll tell you where I think it comes from. I think it's where you can lay blame for your tendency and propensity to want to be pushed to the front, want to be applauded, want to be promoted. And all. It comes from our parents. I meant that to be humorous. You can laugh. What do our parents do? From the moment we're born, they, oh, you're so smart. You're so, oh, look at him, look at her. And we are used to being in the spotlight. We enjoy it. We like it. And somewhere as you grow and develop, as a child, through your childhood, you, you come to this point to where you begin to realize what your limitations are, what you can and what you cannot do. And at that point, and I think that child psychologists have proven this, it's at that point that we begin to adopt heroes in our life. Heroes, people who are able to do things that we are not able, and we begin to try to live their lives and do the things that they're doing because they are emulating what we want to accomplish. Now, I'll, I'll tell you, I had a couple of heroes growing up. One was Little Joe. Some of you know who Little Joe is, others, others down here. I, guys, y'all are just a different generation. We're going to go home this afternoon. You're either going to Google it and figure it out, or you'll actually have a conversation with a parent, a grandparent, or somebody now. There was a show on television when I was a child known as Bonanza. Y'all ever seen Bonanza? You have? Wow. Remember the map that was burning? And the burning map. I could be six blocks away from home, and that could come on television, and I was like, boop, I got to go. And I'm going home because I want to watch Bonanza. I want to see Little Joe. Oh, I like little, I wanted a hat like little Joe. I wanted a horse like little Joe. I wanted brothers like little Joe. I wanted to do everything that little Joe was. Somewhere along the way, he grew up and he starred on another show called Little House on the Prairie. And I 
No, uh-uh. that ain't little Joe, right? He was my hero no longer. Now, my other hero that I had growing up, I know they'll know him, is Elvis. Don't get me started. I grew up not far from Tupelo, which is where he was born, not far from Memphis, North Mississippi, and so I, you know, was heavily influenced by Elvis. I grew up listening to his music, as did many of you, and there was a time one, one year that all I wanted for Christmas was a guitar. And I got a guitar. And so after that Christmas, I would go and I would, I would shut myself up in a room in the house and I would crank up that amplifier and I would play his music and I would, I would sing to the top of my voice. And there was a time my mother slipped in the room and took my picture while I'm pretending to be Elvis. That picture made its way on the next Christmas, Christmas cards that she mailed out. I have aunts relatives that still have that Christmas card. My mother has extra copies of it, and anytime we're at home, especially if my girls are there and I get a little too big for my britches, she said, let me just go see if I can find those Christmas cards. I'm like, I, re- I rescind, no, I, I repent. You don't have to, you don't have to go, because it's humiliating, right? You know, to think that I could be Elvis or even sing like him. I can't even sing like him in the shower. But Elvis was my hero, emulated, because I I wanted to do something and be something above and beyond myself. That's what heroes are for. And of course, there's nothing like having a real-life hero like a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, or uncle, or somebody that you can just look up to and say, you know, I, I know I'm not them at this moment, but Lord, by your strength and ability somewhere, someday, I hope that I can be. I just, I just want to be the person that they are. I want to show you something interesting about this. Notice that Jesus does not rebuke these boys. He didn't preach them a sermon. He didn't lecture to them. Last Sunday, we, we, uh, we looked at Simon Peter in Matthew 16. That's the scripture we looked at where Jesus was asking, who do people say that I am? And you remember Simon Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus praised him and said, Simon... Son of John, you didn't come up with this on your own. You're a blessed man, but your heavenly Father revealed this to you. In Matthew 16, remember those verses that follow where Jesus begins to talk about his death? And Simon Peter came to him and said, Lord, even if all these others desert you, I never will. We're not going to let that happen to you. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. He just called him Simon. He knew his name. Now he said, you're thinking like a fleshly man. You're you're thinking like a carnal man. A few minutes ago, you were thinking like a spiritual man. That was a lecture. That was reprimand, I think. So Jesus knows how to put people in their place, yet he doesn't do it with James and John here in Mark chapter 10. It's as if Jesus contemplates their request And in his perfect way, he processes what he hears them asking. And because I think Jesus knew them so well, maybe he knew their hearts, he knew their motivation, he knew where they were coming from, Jesus simply asked them a question and he said, let me ask you something. Can you drink the cup that I'm forced to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we can. 
Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. What was the cup? There are three times in the New Testament where Jesus referred to the cup. Now if I had time, I would take you into the history of that as it exists in the Passover setting as those Jews observed the Passover meal. The cup had a place. It had a place. As a matter of fact, it represented the turning of the Nile River into blood. And that was a part of the wine that was used in the Passover meal. Jesus referred to the cup. This probably is first time to refer to it. The second time he referred to it was in the upper room with his disciples. You remember where he said after he'd taken the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this represents my body. The Bible says he then took the cup and he said, drink from it, all of you, for it represents my blood, which is shed for you. That's the second time he mentioned the cup. The third time he mentioned the cup was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter, James, and John were there and they heard Jesus pray the prayer three times, basically the same prayer. Do you remember what it was? Father, I pray thee, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Remember, three times Jesus prayed that prayer. Is it possible that at that moment Jesus was feeling the pressure of the cross? Paul explores this, this idea more in the book of Romans, and it's the deepest, most profound thought that I think any person's ever had as he understood how Jesus became sin on the cross. How he consumed the penalty of that sin for you and for me. And it may have been that Jesus in that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane was expressing to the Father the idea that that what he was about to consume was bitter and it was unpleasant and it was not necessarily anything that he wanted to do. Now listen to me. I would be concerned if Jesus had wanted to die. I don't know that Jesus wanted to go to the cross. I think I know that Jesus was willing to go to the cross. So it wasn't this idea that Jesus rushed himself to death and said, oh, let's get it over with. or Let me do this. I want to be known as one who was a martyr. No, Jesus didn't want to die. And he said, Lord, if there's any other way, let's consider that way. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was asking James and John, can you accept the will of God the way I'm having to accept the will of God? That's basically what he was saying. Then he went to baptism. What is baptism? Again, same thing. Representing of a person who has accepted the will of God for their life. A person who's trusted Christ as their Savior. When you are baptized, it means that you are identified with Jesus as Jesus was buried. The Bible says after Jesus died on the cross, he was buried. And then that third day, he was raised from the dead. When a person comes up out of the water in baptism, it's a picture of resurrection. And then we talk, I'd love to talk about the newness of life as a person leaves the baptistry. It's the idea that now their life is different. They are in Christ. They are empowered and enabled by Christ to live the life that he wants them to live. Jesus is asking James and John, are you willing to identify with me in such a way that you are letting me empower your life and enable your life to be lived the way it is supposed to be lived? And they said, 
we can do that. Let me tell you something, folks. I'm not concerned about individuals who who want to serve, who want to do something, who want to make a difference and influence the world for God and Christ. I'm concerned and worried about individuals who don't. Who are willing just to sit and soak and say, I've done all I'm supposed to do and I'm just going to sit back and let happen whatever happens. If enough people in any church, I'm not saying North Winona, not even saying that you're even close to this. So listen to this. But I am telling you, I believe in my heart, I am convinced this is true. If the majority of people in a church, any church, who goes by the name of Christian, is willing to sit back and let somebody else do what needs to be done, there will come a point where nothing gets done and you might as well write anathema over the door of the church which means cursed, and it's, it's destined to die. The church needs workers. The church needs individuals who will step up and say, I can do that. That's what James and John were doing. Listen, these were sons of Zebedee, right? The Bible even tells us who their mother was. Their mother's name was Salome. Guess what's significant about that? Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a sister whose name was Salome. In another gospel, it tells us that Salome came to Jesus on behalf of these two boys and said, "Uh, Lord, when you find a spot for them, would you put them in there? She did that on her. Now, parents believe in their children. I've already made that point to you, right? It may have been that she came first. Now, they're just reinforcing it and said, it may have been that Salome came and said, they're going to ask you about this. I'm just letting you know. Be thinking about it. So it may have been that now they come, but they may come as first cousins of Jesus and say, Lord, we're blood-related. But in that sense, it made them be saying, Lord, we're willing to defend you. Lord, we're willing to do whatever we need to do. We're willing to die for you if necessary. Did he do it? Oh, yeah. Let me just read to you Acts chapter 12. You don't have to turn there. Just listen very carefully. Listen to what it says. It says in Acts 12, Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Now, that's, that's the New American Standards translation, mistreat. He wanted to persecute them. He wanted to kill them. And in verse 2, listen to what it said. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. James committed himself to drinking the cup and being baptized as Jesus was baptized. And it lived to be true in his own life as the Bible records for us that James, one of the early disciples who becomes a martyr, who gave everything that he had to give, he paid the ultimate price for following Jesus. Are you aware that in the early church there there was a coin that was minted that represented James. Now, some of the other disciples had the same thing occur to them. But for James, it was significant because it was one of the first. And the reason it's significant is because he died the first in this way. 
Do you know how he was pictured on that coin that represented James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John? It was a bull. A bull facing a plow and an altar. In their culture and in their setting, they would hitch that plow to that bull and and, and that animal would pull the plow over the ground. What was it doing? It was cultivating the soil, preparing the soil for someone to come and throw the seed on it so that they could raise a harvest there and grow a crop. Is the bull sowing the seed? No, he's just plowing away. But he does it in light of the altar, knowing and understanding that he is sacrificing himself for the good of others. That altar, I think, represented for James Christ himself, but also his willingness to lay down his own life. But when I think about James being the bull, not not just an animal that, you know, wants to take control of a situation, but an animal who is willing to give his strength and his muscle, and his spirit to what is needed. Now now, now listen to me carefully, folks. When you became a Christian, you you were gifted by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? It's called a spiritual gift in the New Testament. I think it's a gift mix. I don't think many Christians have just one gift. I think most of us have been given multiple gifts. And sometimes we fail to understand that the Holy Spirit within us is empowering us and enabling us to do something. A spiritual gift is always given for the purpose of the benefit of the church. And you're to exercise that gift here for your spiritual family. And so many times what happens is that that, that, that out of humility we say, Oh no, oh I can't do that. Listen. I'm going to preach here in a minute if you don't remind me. Pride is the only illness known to man that makes everybody sick except the person who has it. Now you just think about that, all right? I hate pride. I hate it in my own life. I, I almost become viscerally sick when I see an athlete that is so arrogant. That bothers me. I know people, I see them on a regular basis who when they come in a room, I'm going to go the other way. Simply because there's times within me that I want to confront them with their own pride and arrogance. But I know that's not my place. And I shouldn't do it. So I fight against it. There are some people who are so skilled at this that they are able to demonstrate pride in their willingness to turn down an opportunity. You know what you're basically saying? I'm too good for that. We need people who are willing to step up and do whatever needs to be done in the church. Not everything's going to be in a spotlight. Not everything's going to be, you know, on the marquee outside. But what you need to do is say, Lord, I am here. I understand that I am gifted with your spirit and I am empowered to do something in the church. Lord, show me what it is and let me do it. And let me do it for my good and your glory. And God honors that. God honors that. 
Now, set all of that to say, in your worship guide, there was an insert. <laughs> Somebody saying, oh, I wondered if he's going to get around to that. Yep, here it is. In your insert, I'm calling the church to prayer over the next two weeks. This is done by your deacons. This was initiated by your deacons, but I was asked to be the one to present it, so I'm presenting it that way. Your deacon leadership has in their wisdom, in my opinion, came and said, we need the church to be praying. And we want to pray specifically for three things. And don't think, I'm not going to talk about that third one there because my name's mentioned there, but Lord knows I need your prayers, all right? So pray for me, please. But we want to pray for our pastor search committee. We want to pray for each other in this time of transition. We're going to pray for the selection process. And on Father's Day, two Sundays from now, on June the 17th, when you come to church, we're asking for you to bring with you the names of at least six people, three men, three women, that you're going to write on that ballot. And the top nominees on that list will be your pastor search committee. I'm asking you to commit that to prayer in believing that there, there is a job here. There, there, there is a responsibility that is bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's, it's bigger than the composite of all of us together. And that is for God's man to come and serve as your pastor. Sure, there's there some of you out there who say, well, I've got, I've got somebody I want to recommend. I want to put a name for them. And in your mind, it's a done deal. That may be exactly who God calls as your pastor. But in every church where I've ever served, especially as a transition pastor, there is a process that this committee team has to go through where they are searching for the Lord to show up and to give them an understanding of their role in that selection process and making absolutely sure that that's the individual in confidence they want to bring a name as a candidate for you to vote in as your next pastor. Now, if I had time, I'd talk a little bit more about prayer and the effectiveness of prayer. I'm going to get to that in coming Sundays. But this morning, just I want you to know, this morning as I give the invitation, I'm going to give the invitation as I always do. And that is for maybe a person who'd say, I, I, I need to give my life to Christ and I want to come follow him and I want to follow him in baptism and church membership and we're going to invite you to do that. Maybe if you're a Christian or Christian family here this morning and you want to be a part of North Winona Baptist Church, we receive members in a variety of ways. We would invite you to come and inquire about how to do that. How, how can you become a member? Let us talk to you and Figure out where you are in your spiritual journey and exactly how you can be received as a member in North Winona Baptist Church. But I'm also opening the altar here. I'm inviting you to come and pray. You don't have to, but I'm inviting you to. But I am asking you that privately, every single day, over the next two weeks, Whenever your quiet time is throughout the day as these three things are brought to mind that you breathe these three prayer requests to the Lord and say, Lord, I love my church, but I know it's not my church. Lord, it's your church. And I'm asking you, Lord, to give us wisdom. I'm asking you to give us direction as we bring individuals who may be like James and John say, Lord, I'm willing to do it, 
may not be any glory in it, but Lord, I'm willing to do whatever I need to do. And say yes. Say yes when you're asked to bake a cake. Say yes when you're asked to clean a classroom. Say yes when you're asked to make a visit. Say yes. Lord, I will do whatever I need to do, can do. Would you do that? Let's stand and sing this morning. As we sing, the invitation is open. In whatever way that God would speak to your heart, let Him have His will in your life this morning.